Okay, we're going live and I will also go over a few housekeeping items reminding everyone that there will be a recording available and this is a free event so feel free to share the link of the event page to your friends and colleagues afterward. And if they have a question, there will be a Q&A session at the end so feel free to type your question in the chat box. All right, um, I think we're good to go so I'm going to let our moderator, DK, to take it over and let our speakers to introduce themselves. So, DK. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Minja. Glad to be back to Creative Talks podcast. My name is DK, and I'm an architectural professional at SOM in New York office. And uh, today we are having a discussion about the emerging trends in design and development and about talking about technology and prop tech. Let's first start with introducing all our speakers. Let's start alphabetically. How about we can start with Andrew and then we go to Colin and go to Violet. Um, excited to be here. I'm Andrew Staniforth. I'm a principal at LNL Holding Company uh, here in New York City, focusing on large commercial developments and really excited about how technology is transforming the, the development landscape. Worked with Violet at Sidewalk Labs a little bit, pushing the, the envelope there. I'm excited for this chat. Great. So I'm Colin Coop. I'm a design partner at SOM. I like to think of myself as not a typology-driven designer. I tend to do lots of things all over the planet from, you know, education, large-scale commercial, healthcare, urban planning, resiliency. But I think that, you know, the focus of the conversation around technology, I think, is about one of the core things that I'm interested in, which is just the, the nature of uh, technological disruption and our responsibility as designers to sort of not merely deal with the fallout of technological change, whether that's building technology or information technology, but actually take an active role in forming that both ethically, but also in terms of like optimizing the final outcome, which is a more livable planet, a more healthy planet. Um, so interested in the conversation. Hi, I'm Violet. I'm a director of product at Sidewalk Labs on a product called Delve, which is an AI master planning product, or for anyone in the architecture space, you've probably heard generative design is a popular term. And also teach at Columbia's Graduate School of Architecture Planning and Preservation and have been advising on a new master's program there, all in the same flavor of this called Computational Design Practices. Thank you very much. So thanks all for coming here. And how about we just proceed our first question, um, which is a general, very general question. Uh, what are some of the emerging trends that will shape the future of design and the development? Let's go backwards this time. We can start with Violet. So one of my hypotheses and things I like to say is that traditional architecture has really looked at architecture as the noun and in the future we're going to look at it as the verb so what i mean by that is that in the past we really looked at how to put a building together the physical elements modeling it at a fixed moment in time but in the future what really matters now to colin's point you know if we're now much more aware about social and issues of equity we're aware of climate issues. So all these invisible elements are actually things that we can model and evaluate and simulate. We care about the performance of the thing, the verb, the actual like action of the thing. So I think that's a major trend that we're going to see and that you see a lot in generative design products. And then the other is looking at these problems much more statistically rather than individually. So rather than having someone individually trace something. Instead, they can give high-level goals and work with a computer to really run batches of designs and guide the design process at a much more like high-level goal-oriented place. Good answer. I mean, it's an interesting kind of place. I guess I, my, my knee-jerk response in terms of trends would probably be to see an accelerant to a basic trend of the pandemic, which is to sort of transform our understanding of the idea of, of growth versus shrinking. 
and to begin to sort of assign more positive attributes to shrinking, shrinking the scale of our cities, the scale of our human footprint, shrinking the amount of energy that new technologies consume. And I don't necessarily that mean think that means that the city itself is shrinking. And in fact, in many ways, the city has to densify significantly to relieve pressure on the edges of the city and allow that to be sort of rewilded into uh, better ecologies and those sorts of elements. And But it does mean, for example, you know, shrinking the footprint of cars on the planet, whether they're autonomous or not, and looking at mass transit and other more things like that. And I think that the entire dialogue of 20th century design was focused on, you know, let's say comfort that comes with modernization. And I think that we are now adding into that, you know, significant criteria that is at more systematic level, you know, so while plastic made many things more comfortable and has a vital place in the world for medical technologies and other things. It also insinuated itself into a tremendous number of places that it didn't need to be with all these resulting problems of, of pollution and ocean and other things. So the designer's mentality now has to be, just to take that as one example, how do you take that out of your buildings? How do you take that out of your design and replace it with something that is the, the negative effects have shrunk to zero as much as possible? So that, that's a fundamentally different mentality that I was educated with in the late 90s and early 2000s. And it requires a tremendous amount of change for us as designers to think about efficiency as a kind of core element to every act that we undertake. I, I love both of, of your two responses to that. The way I've been thinking about the digital, the, the way that, you know, design trends and, and the way that our industry is transforming, especially over the last 18 months with, with COVID accelerating a lot of things. I think it's for me across a couple different aspects. One on the whole idea of digital is transforming productivity across the board, right? We think about hybrid workplaces, right? All of that. But I think that is amplified with how architects and engineers and our industry is going to look at advanced fabrication as the next generation of, of how we build. And then I think the other side of that, which also happened over COVID, is people have been at home thinking about society, thinking about sort of what it means to be human for the last 18 months. And I think that that has raised the, the level of importance um, of those issues from a justice perspective, a societal perspective, an equity perspective. And if you take those two things together, you have a transformation and a generational shift on the digital side that potentially unlocks a lot of solutions on the more societal and human side. And I think that the interplay between those two, where you're going to see the transformation towards digitally enabled advanced fabrication, unlocking the ability to build more affordable housing, right? And I think those two things are really interesting and accelerated over the last 18 months with, with COVID. So I'm really excited about that. It's like if you didn't have an existential crisis during COVID, I don't know where you were. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think that there, I, I like what you're saying, Andrew, because it really feels like it is kind of that individual experience that everyone's having right now is grappling with like, what am I really doing here with my life? And what am I doing that's meaningful? And they tie to a lot of the things that both you and Colin are talking about. It's like maybe a lot of these aspects uh, that were invisible in the past, now we can actually understand because we have technology. Or maybe like we can skip a bunch of corners that used to be part of like the industrial revolution way of doing things. And now it makes sense to digitize because we can be much more outcome oriented. It's not like about doing a methodical process or something. I think what's interesting about the outcome-oriented point of view, I mean, I look, as a as designer, you were forced to shift, you know, all of us were forced to shift two years ago from the idea of, like, working in, a, in an office together that was, you know, let's say an oversight-based methodology. I see you working, thus I know you're working. And you move towards, you know, an outcome-based methodology, which is to say, I we had a good meeting or that drawing set looks complete or whatever, thus you're doing a good job, right? And that's a fundamental shift that was incrementally coming and it came all at once. And I think that's a super positive piece 
of the, the equation here. I, I do want to say about the pandemic that like, like all things, there is, good, there is good and there is bad. You know, if you look at the reality of those personal choices that people have been making, too many people have made the personal choice to move to the suburbs. You know, the home sales are ex- exploding there. That is not a healthy thing for cities in general. And it's certainly counter to, let's say, sustainability and equity goals where it will tend to balkanize our cities into, you know, wealthier suburbs again and lower income, more struggling city cores. And it certainly will also, if if we emerge out of this pandemic and those people all bought cars and chose to make, you know, kind of different decisions about how to live, it will not be positive. So we have to figure out how the pandemic is being instructive about how to better transform our cities, but also be able to call out um, people are making individual choices that are in the best interests of their families. I'm not here to sort of demonize anybody, but when you aggregate individual decisions into massive macro trends that are counter to like the overall spirit of, of what the moment is calling for, for us, we do have to find a way to encourage people to make different choices. And that's where I think design's most important role is because people don't believe it's possible to live in a high density neighborhood and have access to outdoor space and light and air and comfort and to and, afford it and, and yeah. to afford it. Right. And so how do you break that barrier? That's what design and development and technology need to be able to do, because there are innumerable successes out there. But the, but the landscape of our cities are also littered with, with examples of, of failure of those three disciplines to solve that problem. Just say that I feel attacked since I'm in, I moved to Philly. <laughs> but it's Philly, also a city. Wait, listen, it's a city. It's a city. <laughs> Philly is, is, it's not only a city, it's, it might be the best city on the East Coast. <laughs> All right, you saved it, you saved it. I think it's really interesting that we're talking about like individual choices. And I think something that's happened societally through COVID is a little bit more power in making those individual choices and where people now feel the ability to say, oh, I could not have lived XYZ place because of XYZ reason, right? My job, I had to be in there, you know, five days a week. It's opening up the option set. And I think really what we're in a situation now, what we're seeing is the option is, you know, high cost city or lower cost suburb, right? And it's, it's really a binary thing. And part of the conversation here and part of what we as an industry need to do is present better options now that people have a wider range of, of choices at their disposal or, or some of the constraints have been removed, right? So it's not just high cost cities. You can have, you know, affordable cities and high cost, like you can, you can mix and match and create much more of a gradient in that spectrum, which I think is going to be what we're going to see in the next, you know, five, 10 years where people are going to u- use this opportunity of a little bit of like creative destruction of our old way of thinking and rebuild in a way that gives people that choice, but in a way to Colin's point is not destructive to, you know, our, our larger goals as society to become more sustainable and more equitable and more just and all of that. So I, I think it's an opportunity, but it, it's scary if the options aren't there for people to make the right decision. Yeah, totally. I, I feel like, Colin, your point about unintended consequences is like is like the the point of our time. It's like we see an aggregate that social media behaves in a way that we didn't expect, or we see an aggregate that when affordability options change, that we have these terrible unintended consequences. So I think, yeah, it's like, really figuring out um, the design side, but also the development side and the finances um, and maybe like the actual, what, what the actual commercial product is, like what is a new model of living that is affordable? Does the building, I don't know, does the development of a neighborhood have to look a little bit different to make that viable? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that like, this is where Delve and technologies like that can be part of the, the conversation because it's not only that those neighborhoods and I, and I grew up in the suburbs and I, I, I totally love and understand the, the attraction of them. But like, if you can visualize what it means to shift some portion of 
you know, a suburban landscape from single family zoning only to multifamily being allowed in there to clustering that around transportation nodes to, that reduces, you know, car traffic to carving out bike lane networks and, and tools like Delve, which are super powerful and are, you know, responsive to changing those constraints in real time and then visualizing what that looks like, allow the public to sort of see what the positive outcome be, allow policymakers to understand very quickly how much more tax revenue that could be, allow the participatory process to be less, you know, sort of opaque gamesmanship between development and, and communities and more collaborative approaches towards, you know, carving out smart and responsible ways of growing. Yeah, that was uh, very interesting and inspiring thoughts that we just heard. And that's, Colin was just touching upon it about the current process of development processes that are being opaque and not transparent. That sort of lead us to our next question, because traditionally the process of real estate development or urban economic development and even architectural design, right? It took place in a black box and remains highly not transparent to communities who are directly impacted by the by, by those projects. So what are the technologies that we currently have or currently developing that will be able to change that process? And how transparent should we make the process to the public and how much participate? How do we balance the relationship between public uh, participation and you know, some confidentiality issues about the project, let's say. Resisting just, the, go ahead. Oh, no, I'll go ahead. I said I was going to resist the urge to sell Delve really hard right now. <laughs> but, but I do think products like Delve really do help. But I, I think it's about, it's like back to this point Colin's making of like, how do we actually not understand just the the black box design of an individual building, but what are all the externalities for the city? Does it make, what's it casting shadows on? Is it more or less walkable now? What does it do to the affordability of the neighborhood next door? So I think, you know, we have the technology now to actually be able to understand the like holistic impacts of a development. And so using technologies like that is important. And then to like getting communities, like how, how do you get communities involved and how much is too much? And I think this gets at the point of you need to make the way the product works or the way that you're measuring something very easy to understand that anyone can understand it, but it also needs to be auditable at a much deeper level so that a professional can say like, no, I call bullshit on that. Like it's actually like a little more complicated and you're not accounting for this thing. So you kind of need those two levels of description or something. I, I think there's an honesty to technology and digital products that are less susceptible to spin and, and interpretation and much more data driven. And I think, you know, DK perfectly set Violet up for that plug, Delve, right? Because I think that's what Dell really unlocks is that visibility and honesty and in terms of planning. But I think even if you take it into uh, construction methodologies and actually executing on development projects, you have tools that are moving towards, you know, digital twins that feed into, you know, an advanced fabrication ecosystem where the, the level of information is transferring down and through that visibility, you eke out, you know, massive efficiencies in terms of time and waste and sustainability. So there's, there's this, purity of technology being inserted into all of these processes that allow it to be a much more honest and, and, you know, principled way of doing things because it's not susceptible to human spin and, you know, that marketing twist. Yeah. I, I think that the way that data has transformed the conversation around growth and development in cities is super interesting because the way it's been used in the most public manner currently is by data journalists and you'll go to the New York Times website or something and they will do a visualization of a zoning change and what its implications are. And those are super illuminating. I wish that the, the policymakers in the city would build up their, 
their computational design abilities. Because still the challenge when developers and architects go to communities to talk about potential projects, the fundamental challenge is that, and reality is that most communities would like to see no growth of any kind or a very specific defined kind of growth that puts pressure on other neighborhoods to solve societal problems, but not their own, right? And in cities like, say, for San Francisco, where there is no as-of-right process, communities have effectively ground development to a halt, which has all of these negative uh, impacts on, on housing for the poor and cost of living in a particular location. And so there's a reason why like those two sides aren't talking to each other right now in an honest way is because they, they are... Um, uh, there's no trust between the relationships. But I do think that like data and visualizations and a clear sort of construct will allow policymakers to sort of slice through that intractable relationship and be able to sort of make more realistic, uh, you know, like we're doing this in this location, we're changing the zoning, we're allowing this particular project to be built, whatever it may have you, in exchange for blank in exchange for more livable parts of the city, in exchange for growth and tax revenue that we can then spend on this core thing, pre-K for all or whatever. Like there are, there are specific ways. I mean, that is the reality of being a public servant is you are balancing those competing interests about generating revenue, preserving what's, what's important about communities, trying to lift people out of poverty. And that negotiation could be made more transparent with new design tools. Uh, it doesn't have to be uh, the way it used to be. And so like I, my hope for something like Delve or my hope for something like what we as architects and developers do is try to find ways to use these new tools to sort of make these conversations more clear, but also like um, not optimistic. And what I mean by that is like, you have to show that there are, that there are, there are costs and there are benefits and balance them. Like, there's a realism to the conversation that has to come. Yeah, I really like that I the, that way you stated it of like you really need to be able to understand the incentives and the trade-offs and the reality is like when you build any building it's going to cast a shadow. <laughs> so right. there's always a downside and it's going to have embedded carbon, but also building housing will drive down the cost of housing. So but depending on what the housing is that you build. So it's like how do we it it's communicating something objective but also i do think there's like a marketing side to it that's like you're also trying to communicate both the upsides and the downsides of any development to the many stakeholders whether that's like the community or a development team or the city like how do you get people to not just block a development and actually try and solve the problem? Like, what is the thing that we actually want here? Yeah, it's great. That, that leads us to our next question because with all these powerful technologies, apparently our workflow and even the content of our work has changed a lot, right? Going back to uh, 50 years ago, AutoCAD wasn't around, Excel wasn't around. You know, when developers do deals, we use traditional analog technologies, and so did architects. We do everything. You know, I saw I saw a picture of like 50 architects in a very large room, all wearing ties in a suit, and all of them are climbing on the floor, drawing a eight feet by eight feet piece of paper. Right, that was the way we used to work. And then later on, AutoCAD came around, Revit came around. We do everything on a computer, and we print it out. We make sketches on it. And right now we have Delve and uh, a lot of other parametric modeling tools and generative design tools, which are fundamentally changing the way we do things and the speed we do things like Excel, right? The entire financial industry is almost relying on Excel. So how about what, what's the next thing that's going to happen and how will that change the content of work, the definition of work and uh, how has education architecture schools, business schools, how has the school's educational system changed in, in response to the, the changing world of technologies? That's a weighty question. <laughs> um, I think, you know, there is, uh, you know, piggybacking off some other stuff that I said earlier, but 
we're at a moment in our you know, history as, as humans of a turning point in how we're thinking about a lot of things and work and the role of artificial intelligence and you know automation of work, how that plays into our conception of what we do as people, right? And like, that's a really interesting question. I think that the way that I'm thinking about it is when you drive efficiency in processes through technology, right? It unlocks potential to do higher order things, right? And I think that really is uh, a potential at a macro level where if you are taking road activities um, away from what an architect has to focus on, then they have the bandwidth to focus on things that move society forward. And I think that's really interesting at a macro trend. I think it's also something that as people, we have to think about how we transition, right? And what happens along that way of moving towards these, these technologies to make sure that they do have the benefits at a macro level and also an individual level. So I don't have any good answers on it, but it's a really good question. I think we're at that point where we're going to see some of that transformation. I think over the last 18 months, we've seen part of it where companies are now talking about four day work weeks and countries are talking about four day work weeks. Like, is that changing how we as people have worked since the, the industrial revolution? I don't know, but yeah. Let the machines do the work. <laughs> uh, you know, one of the projects I'm designing is the new College of Computing building at MIT. And so I've ended up talking to those academics for a long time in the last few years. And, you know, you asked about the education of the architect and I would expand that to just education, you know, writ large. But I, I'm very taken by their value proposition of making a new college of computing, which is basically that, you know, over 40% of the undergraduates are computer science majors, believing that that is the only degree that you can have to go out into the world and make a difference or, you know, realize change. And the truth of the matter is, is that like we're at this point where, you know, computing should be like whatever your your natural native language is, let's just say English, in the sense that none of us go to college and get a master's in English to go out in the world and use English. It's a prerequisite for any diploma and computing is the same. So they're trying to reposition computing in at an instructional level with new 50 new appointments of faculty with the other departments and to reposition a vast majority of those students who might have sought purely a computer science degree to get a dual degree in architecture and computational design in humanities and you know history and you know statistical analysis of sanskrit models and th these sorts of things where it not only does it allow people to stop thinking of computers as something that like the specialists do but that we're graduating entire classes of students where it's the it's the air they breathe it's the water they swim in um, and i think that you know people's anxiety of what that means for current professionals like are we going to be overtaken by the machines or is ai going to eliminate half of our jobs no but if you don't want to change if you don't want to become more proficient in these things then you personally will become obsolete is my opinion and as as an architect you have to find a way to take these new powerful tools and make it part of a new and better design process. Because I remember graduating right at the inflection point of Revit. You know, I joined SOM in 2003. The first significant Revit project ever done was One World Trade Center. And Autodesk embedded 20, 10 to 20 employees in our workflow because they knew their program wasn't wasn't going to work for a project of that scale, but they knew what it meant if they could get it to work for a project of that scale. And Phil Bernstein, who was at Autodesk recently, said publicly that, that it, Revit wouldn't exist without a, that project. And that was like a technology company understanding that they were building a better tool and needing to embed with designers and developers to perfect it and then realize, you know, a transformational change. I think that's what Delve is trying to do. I think that's what other people are trying to do with, with machine learning and AI. And we shouldn't be afraid of that. We should actually be running towards it as fast as we can and mastering it um, so that it can make a better place. Yeah, I kind of want to connect something that both you said, Colin and Andrew, which is really, I really 
like this idea that computing is much more a way of thinking and it's a prerequisite. And also, Andrew, your idea of kind of, we're going to be doing this higher order thinking. We don't want to be doing this, tracing things out. And I think people have this this notion in their head that like we're going to get a bunch of machine learning specialists that can break down the inner workings of a machine learning library. And I think that's not it. We're going to need those specialists, but there's also a ton to be learned just by understanding computing at different levels, like higher level programming languages, like even microservices, like if this and that just let you string together like a smart home product with your email just by saying, if this action happens, do this other thing. So we have, I think that there's like also a lot of working with computing will allow us not to have to be writing zeros and ones. We're just understanding the kind of higher level function and thinking about things a lot more systematically or something. Yeah, I think ultimately the goal of technology is to empower instead of like replacing totally the work that we do. That reminds me of uh, when I graduated from college two years ago from Carnegie Mellon, our Bachelor of Architecture program was actually the first class in the school's history to be regarded as a STEM major. Uh, So the class before us, they were not a STEM, we were STEM. The reason is that we had a generative design class in which we learned about Grasshopper, which is a Rhino-based generative design tool. And also we learned how to sort of code like very elementary level coding in Python, not very high level. Uh, But we were learning to, you know, you can download this from this website, plug it into your script, and it's going to do this so that you don't have to draw 10,000 circles, right? (laughs) Things like that. I think that was sort of the first step of schools and the educational system trying to figure out a way to embrace technology and uh, using that to do so and so called busy work right that were actually cost labor hours and so on um i'm just yes. having flashbacks to cutting cardboard models <laughs> in architecture school yeah like we had we not have, i remember freshman year we were forced to hand cut everything on the cardboard with the exacto and later on we were introduced to laser cutter and everybody's life feels so much better after that <laughs> you guys probably don't even know what stippling is does anyone know what stippling is i know what stippling okay. is i am traumatized yeah I have no clue what it is what stippling is, is like you have a in a section drawing you have a slab and you just take your pencil and just tap 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 until it looks like concrete right oh. like, i've watched just start at one I've corner like and you four just, hours of movies doing that and look that's why it's you know like the original the the early 20th century definition of technology was the application of science for the benefit of humanity and that is what we're all after here right is the benefit part of that equation it's not technology for technology's sake it's it's like we benefit from not having to stipple anymore (laughs) as designers right like you know it just shows up the pattern just shows up there is a lot of to be fair there is a lot of and because I hear this a lot from like the hand drawers, the older architects than me, like how much better we have it. And to be fair to the to the young architects, like they have a tremendous amount of new responsibilities, managing large data sets, creating groups in in um, Revit. Like the the set for Lever House, I, I saw it the other day, was twelve sheets for that entire building, you know, and that's a masterpiece, right? And it took them 12 architectural sheets to create it. And we make these, re- you know, the, the level of scrutiny and detail that we create in our work today as, and what the industry is demanding, you know, the contractors and, and everything, there's a tremendous, so like my fear personally about technology is not that we realize gains, gains in, in work weeks and four day work weeks is that inevitably it's the problem if you increase the bandwidth of what's possible, we don't take a vacation, we just fill it with more responsibilities. And we have to interrogate which one of those responsibilities are necessary, really. Because a lot of, I think, what are in sets are not necessary. Like we don't have to do it that way. So that's the workforce problem today. And that's why this generation's pushing back and demanding a a healthier lifestyle is better. And I'll just tell one story and then I'll be done. 
I had a professor, Sarah Whiting, she's now the dean at Harvard, but I saw her the other day and I asked her how it was going. And she goes, you know, we just agreed we're gonna close the school from 2 a.m. to 5 a.m. And she was like, that's the best, the, some students wanna be there, but she's like, we were trying to force them to go home. And she goes, it's so sad. It's only three hours of the day. That's all we could get at the moment. But I, my mind was blown at the idea that they were gonna close that school because I lived in that building 24 hours a day and that's how I was trained. And then I came out in the world. Um, and, and you know, just to connect those points, I really do think we have to like, part of the technology conversation has to be about the humanity of the people doing the work and how we can be better about respecting their lives. Yeah, that's, that's a very good comment from Colleen. I totally agree with that. Architecture students or anyone who's been through architecture school understands that it's a lot of late nights and all-nighters. Nobody said you have to do it, but sort of like due to peer pressure or whatever reason, that's ten, that tends to happen. And also, my first time to hear that school is deciding to close their studio from 2 to 5. <laughs> sounds like a pretty good news. Uh, <laughs> the so, bare minimum is probably what we could describe that as. Good for them. Good for them. Good for them. Uh, so let's go for the next question because we talked a lot about sort of technology's ability to deal with numbers in the industry, right? We have Excel where allowed uh, empowered us to model complicated deals with a lot of stakeholders in it. And we have Revit allowing us to model buildings at a very detailed level. As Colin just mentioned, Leverhouse only had 12 sheets and that's the entire building. And right now with Revit, I would say 12 sheets sounds like, barely sounds like the introduction piece of a building at that size these days, right? Because technology really did allow us to quantitatively do a lot of calculation. And even sometimes it does calculations for us like technologies will even lay out a master plan for us that maximize daylight, maximize unit counts, and even sometimes give us a flyer account and even financial predictions with that. How about the non-quantitative parts? How about the qualitative parts, right? Because as a society, especially the built environment, it's not only about the square footage, you know, the NOI, it's also about the political, cultural, and other contextual information, right? How well do we think technology will be able to incorporate those factors into building and development processes? I want to use this analogy or I guess story, anecdote, I don't know what you call it, that I really like, which was in the time that illustrators were really worried about what was going to happen to making movies when Pixar emerged and all those technologies. They said their jobs are going to go away. The movies are going to be terrible. They won't like have any real message. But what really happened is that they spent a lot more time on the message behind the movie. They worked on the character development in an animation environment or the context 3D environment or something. And so I think we're going through something similar where there's a little bit of an existential crisis. It's like, well, if we just have the machines do it, everything, or like if they're running the show, then no one's going to think about the ethical implications of these things. And I think there's still a really important place. Like that's exactly why we need um, technology is so that we can get people doing that higher order, higher order thinking. Like, I don't think we want computers figuring out the governance and political systems that maybe they can give us quantitative metrics that relate to that. But ultimately, like humans need to be making those decisions and let's get them making those decisions versus, you know, laying out door schedules and that kind of thing. I agree with everything Violet said. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the, the missing part of the equation, actually, for, I was thinking about this, is the, is the contractors when we talk about some of these things and the, the role of technology and, you know, the, the blending of, of their particular discipline, which is the physical realization of all the things we're talking about is, is the, the other missing link because it's a tremendously inefficient process to construct buildings. It holds us back from realizing all those social goals that we just talked about. And I'm an advocate 
I was suspicious of, but I'm inc increasingly an advocate of, of new methods of delivery that allow all of the parties involved, the developer, the architect, the engine, you know, the, the contractor to take less oppositional roles in the process. There are ways to do that and have excellent buildings come out of it. Um, and I do think they're, they're potentially more efficient, but they also lead to potential fertile ground of actually like, for example, design assisted processes where designers draw much, much less and they deliver it to fabricators much, much earlier and they bring their expertise on board you know, almost immediately and you forge you know, a, a more beautiful design because the expertise is there at the beginning, but also it allows the architect to cease to like have to master everything. Because I think one of the fundamental problems of our profession right now is this belief that we have to master energy modeling and building fabrication and zoning code and community outreach and new technologies, generative design. We have to make the big 10 approach and let you know other people bring that expertise in in a way that's more collaborative. I, I just want to say one thing on top of that. I think that the role of technology, right, the, the role of a developer is taking a lot of stakeholders and managing the relationship amongst those stakeholders. And it's really around information and risk sharing, right? How do you send information uh, bi-directionally or, or one directionally? And how do you parse risk, right? And there's a risk transfer from the architect to the contractor, the contractor to the subcontractor. And there are a lot of interesting things that are happening with advanced fabrication, digital twin models that break down that conventional notion of transferring information and, and how you parse risk when you transfer information, right? So the, the days of having you know, your architect do something in Revit and then flatten those drawings and deliver a PDF, and then they rebuild that Navisworks to do your shop drawings, right? That is going to change, and it is changing. Um, and there's really exciting companies that are tackling that. And then also what that enables is to look at different ways of actually constructing, right? So once you change that information flow, once you change that risk flow, you unlock the potential to build buildings the way that, you know, high-tech industries are doing it, like Boeing and, you know, cars, right? Subcomponents, the supply chain network, integrated supply chains, and it really becomes a whole different industry enabled by that flow of information through a digital model. And I think that that's going to be really, really, really interesting. Yeah, I could not agree more. It's a bright future in that, in that sense. Yeah, sounds like the future of project delivery method is, sounds pretty bright with this because we're sort of running out of time. So the last question is because most of our audiences are based in New York and other metro areas in the United States uh, and uh, Canada, maybe. What are some of the post-COVID challenges and opportunities exist for metro areas like New York City? Yeah, maybe I'll start and maybe other people can build. I, just on the, the point of New York, New York's going to be fine. New York, I, I genuinely think global cities are probably going to be strengthened by the pandemic, if anything. And ironically, then I think like second and third tier cities are going to be strengthened in a weird way. It's the in-between metro areas that are going to struggle the most to attract people because like the the, the, the third tier city offers lo super low cost of living and New York offers, you know, and global cities like them just offer things that that like other cities will struggle to, to, to do, which is just like culture, talent pools that just don't exist elsewhere and things like that. I think that that the the specific challenge with New York is that it is ec economy is largely driven by white collar work that's housed in commercial buildings and those commercial buildings build city centers which then have a whole constellation of support around them in hospitality in food service and other things and the remaking of the city which which leaves at the moment most of those buildings empty has really struggled for those other parts of the economy that rely on it so we're going to change the nature of work we're going to and i think it's going to be a better and brighter world but i don't yet know what the outcome will be on the form of the city and whether we're going to go my personal theory is that we're going to go less from a hub and spoke orientation within the city meaning manhattan 
and periphery and go to much more towards a multimodal development where downtown Brooklyn is, is, is not about people living there and commuting in, where there are these nodes which are mixed use, which is that 15 minute model of the city that we're all aspiring to. And I think that New York, if it goes in that direction, it will be a great accelerant to its form, which has always been five boroughs, which has always been like this nature of, of being a city of, of city states. Yeah, I, I think I'm a, just a personal belief of mine, not even in like the urban or development context, but that opportunity gets created when there are, you know, vacuums or voids, right? And I think that where we have certain changes happening and exactly what Colin was talking about and how people work and what that means for the office market, that's going to create a really interesting opportunity for how we rethink that. It's, it's basically like you have these global cities that have been packed to the brim for, for generations, and now you have a little bit of space in them. And I, I don't necessarily mean physical space. I, I almost mean more like space to think about what you can do in them. And maybe in certain instances, it is a physical space thing, but it really just opens up the... The, the option set of what you can do in these urban cities. And I think that is really exciting for people of our generation who are now thinking about what is what do cities look like? What are the cities that we're going to build and build upon look like in our generation? So I think it's a massive opportunity for cities. I'm a big believer in New York, double down in New York during COVID. So and um, Philly. I think, and Philly, and Philly. <laughs> no, but I, I think cities are, are going to thrive. Yeah, I feel like there's, uh, in the past, everything was structured around making physical things. So we have these offices where it's like, you're going to come here and you're going to do this thing. And now back to your point earlier, Andrew, of like higher order thinking, I guess that's essentially what you're saying right now. We're going to, and what Colin's pointing out with these big offices that are empty. Um, yeah. It, I am curious, like the the if a lot of our goods are bought on online and we don't have the physical stores and the the offices aren't being used, yeah, that maybe there's some opportunity to be using those to do that higher order thinking. Like, what it, what do we want that space to do for us as a society? I don't know. Maybe they're. Uh, no, I, I can't come up with it right now. I don't think cities are going to compete for that solution, right? You know, New York's going to try one thing. Chicago's going to try a different thing. Philly's going to try a different thing. And that's what's going to be really interesting about the next, you know, generation is how these cities look at this opportunity and what they do with that opportunity, right? Some might say, okay, I'm going to repurpose office for housing. Others might say, no, 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 office is going to stay. Others might look at, you know, industrial and manufacturing. And that's going to create the next generation of what the global cities are based on how people react to, to this point. I think it's, uh, you know, to close the loop on an earlier comment I, I mentioned, and, and I apologize because I, I have to run, but I do think it comes back to policymakers. So two, two places in the city right now, Red Hook, you know, which from my time that I've been there has had all these visions of becoming this place that, that's connected, better connected to the waterfront a mix of uses, a mix of demographics. You know, the most recent trend there is that a, a tremendous number of sites are being filled with last mile, you know, warehouse facilities because it's the lowest rent area and they can get it into Brownstone, Brooklyn from there. And that's a, you know, it's a negative development. And it's partially because like, you know, the, 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 the crafting of the zoning in that place didn't, didn't encourage the kind of development now, two other examples that are counter to that is like what's happening at the Guanas Canal in Brooklyn, where the rezoning is trying to push through tying the cleaning up of that, you know, riverway with a huge increase in affordable housing and, a, you know, massive requirements in that, as well as market rate housing, obviously, to pay for it. But those public realm improvements and those environmental improvements are tied to growth, you know, in a very specific way. Same goes for Governor's Island, which we all adore and they would are going through a ULERP to try to build a sustainable economic model for that island, but they want to do it by building, you know, an institution for climate research, a, a way of like 
approaching um, education and research in, in a more inclusive way. Like these are smart things that that, that are happening. And the more that we can do that and the less that we can let the red hook turn into the, like, you know, the warehouse of, of, of Brooklyn, the better off we're going to be. So I'm so sorry. I have to go at the end of my time, but it, this was a pleasure talking to everybody. So, so Thank much, you, Colin. Thank you. Thanks, Colin. Thank you. DK, so we have two questions from the audience and Colin already answered one of them already during the panel discussion. So that question was about AI replacing employment in real estate and Colin saying, no, technology is not going to replace everybody. It's going to empower. It's a good, good tool to use. And then the second question is, what aspects about emerging technologies most excite you? I think the unlocking of traditional the traditional relationships in the development world by technology is what interests me, right? And I think that's it's just a little bit more than individual technologies, but it, it what those technologies enable us to do and how we work with people, right? And what that what I mean by that is a little bit of like the risk and information transfer that I was talking about earlier, right? Does it unlock how you view the relationship of an architect and a contractor? Does that open up new ways of doing business that are better ways to develop, right? And maybe that's moving towards a more fabrication model enabled by that technology. And I think that is what really excites me is how technology sort of takes the handcuffs and takes the guardrails off of all of the business practices that we've been forced into just based on how difficult building cities is. I actually agree with that. I'm going to keep going back to your analogy earlier, Andrew, because I really like it of high order thinking. But if if we were all hustling around, like living this industrial revolution model of life, where we, you know, you hate your job, you just like do the one thing over and over and pump things out and just try and like do stuff, you don't even know why you're doing it. I want the future model to be much more like being a human being, like how do we be more intentional about what we do with our time and what we're actually building? So for me, it's like really being able to use technology to do very powerful things, but um, to think at a, a higher level, like understand the full system of a neighborhood and what in, the impacts are going to be on that thing versus like, I'm going to get this drawing set done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great. Thank you so much to all of our speakers. I cannot thank you enough for doing this with us. And I look forward to meet everybody in person in New York City. And any last comments from any speakers? And I will put Delph's website on the event page. So everybody make sure to check out Delph. And please go check out L plus L Holdings 425 Park Avenue project. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye.